Chapter thirty eight of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchet Carey. Chapter thirty eight Tangled Threads. God has furnished us with constant occasions of bearing one another's burdens. For there is no man living without his failings, no man that is so happy as never to give offence, no man without his load of trouble. A loving heart is the great requirement. Teaching of Buddha Cedric had spent the Easter vacation with Malcolm at Cheney Walk. Malcolm had previously sounded Dinah before he gave the invitation, and found that she fully appreciated the thoughtfulness that prompted it. "'It is so like your usual kindness, dear friend,' she wrote. "'You felt as we do, that the Woodhouse would be too quiet and dull just now for Cedric. It is so much better for him to be with you.' Indeed, I shall not mind being alone, and when Cedric goes back to Oxford, you will run down to see me as you promised. Malcolm was relieved to find a great improvement in Cedric. Though his love affair had ended so disastrously, he had achieved his pet ambition, and had been in the winning boat in the Oxford and Cambridge boat race. The excitement and months of training had done him good, morally and physically, and though he was still depressed and melancholy, and had by no means forgotten Lear, he showed greater manliness and self-control, and Malcolm's influence was again in the ascendant. Malcolm took him to Queensgate, and introduced him to his mother and Anna. He had previously acquainted his mother with the story of his unfortunate infatuation for Leah Jacobi. To his surprise, she was deeply interested, and begged to be allowed to tell Anna. "'Anna cares so much more for unhappy people,' she said. "'You will see how kind she will be to the poor fellow.' In her way, Mrs. Herrick was kind, too. Malcolm, who knew young men were seldom welcome at twenty-seven Queensgate, was secretly amazed at the graciousness with which Cedric was received. Mrs. Herrick's stoicism was no proof against the lad's handsome face and deep melancholy. Her manner softened and grew quite motherly. And as for Anna, Malcolm took her to task at last, when he found that Cedric was in the habit of going over to Queensgate at all hours in the day. Anna thought Malcolm was serious, and flushed up in quite a distressed manner at his bantering tone. "'Mother asked him,' she said, defending herself quite anxiously. "'It is so dull for him at Cheney Walk while you are in town, and so Mother said he could come here to luncheon whenever he liked.' "'That was kind of her,' returned Malcolm. But as for dullness, there is not a more jovial old fellow than Goliath of Garth. He and Verity 
would look after him right enough during my absence. Cedric used to be quite chummy with them when he was with me before. Yes, I know, dear, but Mr. Templeton says things are so different this time. He likes the Kestons tremendously, but somehow, he says, he does not feel up to the studio life. I know what he means, Malcolm, rather shyly. When one is unhappy, one must choose one's own companions. And so Cedric prefers being here, and talking to you about his troubles. Perhaps Malcolm's tone was slightly mischievous, for Anna blushed violently. "'Oh, Malcolm, surely you understand,' she returned nervously. "'Don't you see? Mr. Templeton knows we are sorry for him, and he is grateful for our sympathy, and he likes to come and talk to us. He made me feel quite bad yesterday.' I could hardly sleep for thinking of all he went through, and thinking of the death of that poor Mr. Carlion. He does seem so very sorry for his sister, though he declares that he never thought him good enough for her. That is how people talk, went on Anna, frowning thoughtfully over her words. They will judge by outward appearance as though anything matters when two people love each other. Mr. Templeton has been talking so much about his sister Elizabeth that he quite makes me long to see her. But all the same, he seems to care most for his elder sister. I believe he does, returned Malcolm. But then she has taken the place of a mother to him. Anna, dear, I was only in jest. I am really very grateful to you and my mother for making Cedric so happy and at home. I do quite understand, and I believe the society of two such good women will do much for him. Like the rest of us, he has found out that you are a friend born for adversity, a veritable daughter of consolation and Malcolm's words made Anna very happy. When Cedric returned to Oxford for his last term, Malcolm paid his promised visit to the Woodhouse. But he only stayed two nights. The place was too full of painful associations. Elizabeth's presence haunted every room. The emptiness and desolation of the house oppressed him like a nightmare. And though Diana's gentleness and tact made things more bearable during the day, at night he found himself unable to sleep, and Diana, who read his weary look aright, forbore to press him to remain. "'It is not good for him to be here,' she said to herself. "'He is so kind and unselfish that he will not spare himself. But I will not ask him to come again.' and Dinah kept her word. But they had much to discuss during those two days. There was now no longer any talk of the civil service examination for Cedric. At the end of June he was to go abroad for six or eight months. A friend of Malcolm's, a young barrister, who had also been crossed in love, 
a sensible, straightforward fellow, was to accompany him. "'He is sure to like Dunlop,' Malcolm observed, as he and Diana paced the terrace together in the sweet spring sunshine. "'Charlie is a good-hearted fellow, and one of the best companions I know, though he is a bit down in the mouth just now, poor old chap.' "'I think you said the lady jilted him,' asked Diana sympathetically. "'Yes, and he is well rid of her, if we could only get him to believe that. "'She was a handsome girl. I saw her once. "'But she came across an American millionaire, and sent Charlie about his business. "'Oh, he will get over it fast enough,' as Diana looked quite sorrowful. When a woman does that sort of thing, she just kills a man's love. Of course, he must suffer a bit. His pride is hurt, as well as his heart. But in two or three years he will fall in love again, and will live happy ever after. Oh, how I hope Cedric will care for some nice girl by and by, exclaimed Diana earnestly. But Malcolm only smiled. "'You need have no doubt of that, my dear lady,' he returned. "'But you must give him time to be off with the old love. That is why I am so anxious that he and Miss Jacobi should not meet. You tell me that she and Mrs. Richardson returned to Sandy Hollow early in June.' "'Yes, Mrs. Godfrey told us that.' "'Then the sooner he is out of England, the better. "'In London one is never sure of not coming across people.' "'And then he rapidly sketched out the details of the proposed trip, "'which was to include Germany, Switzerland, the Austrian Tyrol, "'the Italian lakes, and probably Greece and Constantinople. "'Cedric,' had a great desire to visit the Crimea and the shores of the Bosphorus, and to see something of Eastern life. In all probability, Christmas and the New Year would be spent in Cairo. "'We had better leave Dunlop to work out details,' continued Malcolm, "'as money or time seem no object. You may as well give them a long tether. Change of scene will do Cedric a world of good.' and when he is tired of wandering, he will settle down more happily. Very likely, by that time, he will have some idea of what he wants to do. And Malcolm's sound common sense carried the day. Dinah spoke very little of her sister. She was well, she said, in answer to Malcolm's inquiries. Elizabeth was so strong that her health rarely suffered but she was grieving sorely for David. "'Mr. Carlion is better,' she continued. "'Elizabeth is the greatest comfort to him. She goes with him when he visits the sick, and sits beside him when he writes his sermons. Indeed, Theo says they are never apart. "'Theo is very much softened and subdued by her brother's death,' went on Dinah. I think Elizabeth's influence and example will do good there. I believe that with all her faults, Theo Carlion is really a good-hearted woman. 
Malcolm paid a flying visit to Oxford soon after he got back to town. Somehow movement seemed necessary to him in those weary, restless days, and he took Mr. Dunlop with him, and had the satisfaction of seeing that Cedric appeared to like him at once. "'He does not seem to stand on tiptoe and look over a fellow's head, don't you know?' observed Cedric. "'He meets one on equal terms, though he is ten years older. He is a chip off your block, Herrick, and I expect he is a good fellow too.' And all this speech did Malcolm retailed to Dinah in his next letter. Cedric spent three or four days at Cheney Walk before he started for the continent, and again most of his time was devoted to his friends at 27 Queensgate. Malcolm was secretly glad that he was in such safe hands, for as the time of Cedric's departure drew near, he could not divest himself of an uneasy fear that all their precautions might be unavailing, and that when they least expected it, he and Lear Jacobi would come face to face. He knew that she and her new friend, Mrs. Richardson, were now settled at Sandy Hollow for the summer, and that Mrs. Richardson came frequently to town for sightseeing or shopping expeditions. Malcolm little knew what good reason he had for his fears. On Cedric's last day in Cheney Walk, Mrs. Herrick proposed that he should drive with her and Anna to Pall Mall to see some pictures that were being exhibited. She would leave them at the gallery for an hour, and call for them when she had done her shopping. Malcolm had promised to be there at the same time and they would all go back together to Queensgate for the remainder of the day. It so happened that Mrs. Richardson had planned one of her favourite shopping expeditions for the same day, and in the course of the afternoon the hansom she had chartered drew up at a shop exactly opposite the gallery, where at that very moment Anna, Cedric and Malcolm were coming down the staircase to join Mrs. Herrick, who was waiting for them in her carriage. Leah, who had not recovered her normal strength since her attack of influenza, was excessively tried by all the noise and bustle of the West End, and begged to remain in the hansom while Mrs. Richardson finished her purchases. When Mrs. Richardson came out of the shop a quarter of an hour later, the handsome carriage with its pair of bay horses had driven off, and Leah was leaning back in the handsome, looking white as death, with a pained, startled expression in her beautiful eyes. Mrs. Richardson told the man to drive to the station. Then she took the girl's hand kindly. "'What is it, my dear?' she said in a motherly voice. "'Are you ill?' or has something frightened you?" But it was long before Leah could gasp out her explanation. She had seen him, and he looked quite bright and happy, and he was talking to a fair-haired girl with a sweet face, and Mr. Herrick was with them. 
But poor Lear could say no more, for the jealous pain seemed to choke her. That was the way he had smiled at her, and now she was forgotten, and this other girl had taken her place. Mrs. Richardson, with all her eccentricities, had a warm, true heart, and she was very patient and tender with the poor girl. But late that night, as she sat in her dressing-room, there was a timid knock at her door, and Leah entered in her white wrapper, with all her glorious dark hair streaming over her shoulders, but her eyes were swollen with weeping. "'I felt I must come and speak to you, or I could not sleep,' she exclaimed in her deep voice, and kneeling down by her friend. "'Oh, I have been so wicked, but I will try to be good now.' "'Tell me all about it, dearie,' returned Mrs. Richardson, in her kind, comforting voice, and she drew the dark head to her shoulder, and a sort of wonder filled her eyes, as she saw the glossy lengths of hair that swept the floor. To an onlooker, Mrs. Richardson might have seemed a somewhat grotesque figure in her quilted magenta silk dressing-gown, with her grey fringe pinned up by her maid in little twists and rolls. But her honest eyes beamed with kindness and sympathy. "'Oh, I have been so wicked,' repeated Lear. "'All these months I have been praying that he might not suffer as I have been suffering, and that in time he might forget me and be happy. And yet, because my prayer has been answered, and that girl is helping him to forget, I felt as though I hated her.' And then she hid her face in the folds of the gaudy dressing-gown, and shed tears of bitter shame and self-loathing. "'My dear, if you cry so, you will make yourself ill,' observed Mrs. Richardson, soothingly. "'You have been sorely tried, you poor child, but you are not wicked. On the contrary, I think few girls have behaved so well. Do not call yourself names, dearie. Mrs. Godfrey and I both think you good, and we mean to do our best to make you happy. Yes, and I am so grateful to you both, you dear, dear friends. And Leah raised her tear-stained face and kissed her with all the warmth of her loving nature. What was it to her that Mrs. Richardson, an odd-looking, eccentric old lady, whose curled grey fringe and gay attire scarcely harmonised with her homely, weather-beaten features? To Leah, her face was transfigured by the loveliness of a kind and tender nature. "'I think I saw her as the angels did,' she said long years afterwards, to one who had served for her as Jacob did for his beloved Rachel. For I loved every line of her dear, homely face, 
Oh, how she mothered me, who had never known mother love, and how good and patient she was with me in my bad times. If God had not taken her, I could never have left her, never. For when Mrs. Richardson died some years later, her hand was locked in that of her adopted daughter. Leah drooped for some time after this encounter. Then, as the summer went on, she recovered her spirits gradually. New duties and interests demanded her attention, and in the wholesome and active life led by the mistress of Sandy Hollow, she found plenty to distract her sad thoughts. Mrs. Richardson was a great gardener, and on warm days she spent most of her time in the open air. They breakfasted under a spreading chestnut, and often dined in foreign fashion on the terrace facing the sunset. When Malcolm went down to the manor-house in August, before he started for Norway, he walked across to Sandy Hollow with Mrs. Godfrey. They found Mrs. Richardson sitting in a shady retreat with all her various pets round her. Leah was gathering flowers in the lower garden, she said. She received Malcolm very kindly, for he was one of her favourites, and talked to him a great deal about the girl, of her sweet temper, her docility, and her patience. "'She has heard nothing of that wretched brother of hers,' she continued. Then Malcolm shrugged his shoulders. He could give her information on that subject, he said dryly. At least a score of begging letters had reached him and Cedric from New York, and had been consigned to the flames. Saul Jacobi was evidently playing his old tricks and living on his wits. He was utterly irredeemable. Hugh Rossiter always prophesied that he would never die in his bed, and this prediction was unfortunately verified some three years later, when, in a drunken brawl, a tipsy sailor lurched up against him one dark night, and pushed him over the quay. No one heard his cry for help, for the oaths and curses that were filling the air. Neither was his body found until the next day. Strange to say, it was Hugh Rossiter who identified it, and it was he who later on brought Lear a pathetic little proof that Saul had not wholly forgotten his sister. In the pocket of his shabby old coat, how shabby and how ragged it was, Hugh never ventured to tell her, there was a cheap little photo of Lear, taken when she was eighteen and in the first bloom of her young beauty, and on the soiled envelope was written, my little sister Leah, and the date of her birth. For no nature is wholly evil and irreclaimable, and perhaps, in spite of his tyranny and cruel tempers, there was a spark of affection in the man's heart for the young sister dependent on him. Leah always believed this, and she wept the saddest, tenderest tears over the little photo. 
"'My poor Saul,' she said. "'His nature was strangely warped, "'and he did not know how to speak the truth, "'and he could be hard and cruel, "'as I know to my cost. "'But there were times when he was very good to me.' "'And so even Saul Jacobi had one human being to mourn for him. End of chapter 38